Hi, everybody. This is a podcast where real doctors discuss fake medical emergencies. That means that unless Dr. Hodad, the hands of death and destruction, is performing surgery on you right now, this podcast is not medical advice. If you need medical advice or medical care, please contact your doctor. Also, just as a heads up, this week we talk about some sensitive topics, including teen suicide. There are resources and phone numbers in the show notes if you need someone to talk to. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackson Payne. I'm Johnny Kolosinski. You might remember me from such podcasts as Parks and Recreation, a show where uh, less talented actors do table reads of their favorite Parks and Rec scripts. Rec That's on scripts. my background right now, by the way. Parks and Rec. <laughs> Uh, this is Hi Everybody, a Bad Medicine podcast, uh, where we talk about what Hollywood gets right and wrong about medicine and what the body works, how the body works, what the body works with. Yes. I don't even know anymore. Uh, <laughs> you can find this podcast online at HiEverybodyMD.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HiEverybodyMD. You can also call us on 530-DOCTORB, that's 530-D-O-C-T-O-R-B. The B this week stands for blower, I guess. Okay. Uh, so this week we are joined by Dr. Courtney Nicholas. Hi, everybody. Uh, to talk about the resident season three episode, this, ten. episode 10. I, sh- I should write those parts down. Yeah. Uh, The whistleblower. Jackson needs to explain the blower comment. Yes, because the episode's name is Whistleblower, and I think that is fitting for the name of this episode and how it ends, actually, which is the spoiler alert. But this, I mean, I feel outnumbered because I said this is a terrible episode, but two out of three of you, three of us, really like. I was late to start recording this episode because I watched the next episode of The Re- Resident afterwards. After I'm, so, I'm and so ashamed. And my disclaimer is that I have seen every episode of The Resident. So yeah, ashamed of both it, of you right now. As far as Jackson's concerned, the B could stand for blows, as in Jackson thinks The Resident blows. I do. You, you saw how much pain I was when I was watching the, yeah. first, like the pilot episode. That thing was terrible. If if you folks listening at home haven't listened to Jackson and I discuss the pilot of The Resident, it is delightful. Uh, oh, it, it, it was so rough. Mm-hmm. So, so rough. That probably, like, destroyed a small part for me. Okay, no. It is fantastic. Okay. My father was a fighter pilot, and growing up, we watched Top Gun, like every other week and he would watch it he'd get all into it and he's like oh that's not real there's no 10,000 foot deck this and that and we had it all memorized and I feel like I do that with medical shows now I just watch it and I'm like (laughs) oh that's not real we wouldn't do it like that and you just get into the characters and it's like I love it I know you like the characters in this one like I don't know where should we start well what's his name is hot first ones which one uh the main guy yeah, actually, they're all hot. Clearly, you know, you're so into it that you don't even know the character's names. You're like, the main guy. The resident. But see, the, the names don't matter as much. Conrad? Was it Conrad? No. Conrad, Well, I was yeah. thinking of the actor's yeah, name, but I don't know that. Oh, I don't know that. Um, normally, I know stupid stuff like that, but definitely don't know that. But what storyline episode, though? I want to just quick question for you guys. Did you watch the Parks and Rec uh, coronavirus special? no there is one yeah they did one over over basically over zoom and it's great and i was really disappointed because they had a fake number for john ralphio 
Oh, that was not working. And it wasn't working. You called it too? <laughs> you I called it. it. <laughs> I called it immediately. Yeah, Katie beat the, me to it. The, the minute I saw the phone number on the TV screen, I dialed it. And I'm like, wait, a phone number with the number one in the beginning of the seven-digit part. It's probably not real, but... They, they, I, I think they really missed out on a chance to have that be a fundraising line for the charities they were raising. Oh, uh, it would have been great. But yeah, that was a but great our thing. fake numbers are real, folks. Oh, our fake numbers are 100% real. People are like texting it randomly. I think it's the <laughs> wrong number, but I'll take it for now. Yeah, I've just been drunk texting 530-DOCTORB. And hey. How did you message- guys get 530-DOCTORB? Google Voice. Uh, I Google really? Voice. Really? I looked up. Doctorb, and that was the one that popped up. So I said, I'm going to take it before something. And Las Vegas it. sounds gr- is a great town for fake doctors, for well, a fake number fair. for a bad doctor. That's fair. It's the way to go. Okay. Hey, we're good doctors. Yeah. Mm, the, I, I was thinking Dr. Nick Riviera. Yeah. <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> okay. So, right. Johnny, but where, moving should, in where to- should we start? Um, well, I want to actually start with the very opening scene of. Uh, in which it, it, I don't know if it was the very opening or pretty darn close to it, the scene in the operating room uh, with um, where they were arguing about whether a patient was worth saving while he was there on the table because he was going to have bad quality of life and he shouldn't have had the surgery anyway. Yeah, like this patient was in dement. It was an, and I wrote this down, an 89-year-old male or an 89-year-old with dementia and they were doing some kind of decomp like decompression uh, neurologic surgery, and then also working on his hip, which why are you working on a patient's hip who's 89 years old with dementia? Because he's It happens. I know, but that's not a, there's so much risk involved with Mm -hmm. taking a person that old and that fragile with veins that are very, very paper thin um, into the OR. There's so much risk in this situation. And, and this I, is a patient who had like a drain too. They or they put in a VP shunt. It sounds like. What do they mean by PVP. by uh, putting in the drain, opening the drain? So um, they could have had a tube inside of his ventricle, inside of his brain, um, and they're trying to drain out some excess uh, cerebral spinal fluid to de- decrease the pressure, so that he doesn't build up so much, pre- so much pressure that he herniates. Okay. And what herniation means is that your brain stem goes into the hole at the base of your skull. And if it goes down there, um, you're basically dead. Right. Yeah. I, I, so brain juices should stay in the brain. Mm, brain juices can go wherever. You just don't want too much brain juice. Got it. And that's what the VP shunt is for. Or, or in this case, it's probably an EVD or extraventricular device, I think, to make sure that you can drain the fluid so that you don't build up too much pressure in the brain. But when you have too much pressure, your heart rate starts dropping. So that's what they were mentioning. Okay. Is that what they meant, What they were saying when he was bradying down? Yeah. So it means bradycardia. And bradycardia oh, is one okay. of which means it's one of the three things in Cushing's triad, which tells you that the brain is herniating. Okay. This is stuff that I deal with way too often. Medical <laughs> degree by the time this is finished. Yeah, the- Seriously. Yeah, I'm, my, my secret goal is for someday you guys to be able to, to do this at, at medical conferences, just do live panels that count as uh, continuing medical education for folks. I mean, potentially. Well, we have to quiz them or something like that, or they have to take a survey, and that's how they get CME. Looked into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, 
so 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 that that's what was happening to the patient but mm -hmm. the thing that really caught me off guard was the fact that they were having that argument in the operating room yeah i mean you should have um, this should have been cleared up way before this was done and the family should have had like a better discussion with better doctors about <laughs> not doing something like this and this is where my problem with the whole the resident is is that all the attendings are so corrupt mm -hmm. we all well, suck be good drama good tv my favorite is the surgeon's nobody dies in my OR. Mm. And I think that goes to kind of the the difference in the way different specialties approach a case where you have someone like Dr. Winter who approaches, you know, an 89-year-old in palliative care, you look at making the quality of life better and, you know, making sure that the death is, you know, respectable and, and how the patient wants to die. And I struggle with that as an intensivist because in our world, you know, even though I'm dealing with babies, it's do everything you can to prolong life and to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great picture of how those two approaches collide and at extremes, obviously, for TV drama, but nobody dies in my OR. This guy is going to do everything regardless of quality of life regardless of you know what maybe the right thing to do is um because he doesn't want to lose mm -hmm. yeah and, and i will say i have uttered those words too as in no one dies in my er they can die in the picu just not in my er because you know we'll try to stabilize them and get them the best place we can but i would never do what that attending tells his resident to do which is go to the family and say that he's doing well you know i would never smile at a family and give them false hope like that that's mm -hmm horrendous and then i'm sure courtney would agree with me she would never i always say hope never do something like that where like if a baby is pretty sick you wouldn't go like oh the kid's gonna be great you'll say they're stable but not like oh i never use the word stable even if they're doing fantastically and i will be straight out honest with parents that i never use the word stable Fair. <laughs> because people take that and hold on to that and don't hear anything else that you tell them about <laughs> that is fair and so I did like, though, when he sent that person in to tell them, you know, the horrible things about everything's doing well, he said, um, what did he say? Remember the smile? Smile. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> I, just, I, wrote, I wrote down the quote because I kind of liked it. It was like, smile, it makes it, oh, smile. It shows that you take pleasure when delivering good news. And that is so true. Like, I love delivering good news. I think we deliver so much bad news that when I am able to tell a family, now this isn't the case in this, you know, they're lying in this case, but yeah. across the board, when I'm able to give a family good news, I jump at that mm -hmm. opportunity. I mean, when I'm in a delivery and if, you know, we're resuscitating and I've done so many, I've been to so many bad deliveries, the nurses know that it's my favorite part when the baby's doing well, finally to wrap the baby up and give it to the mother because like oh. that, like, I get Success. to do something good. <laughs> instead of sticking tubes in and whatnot. Yeah, so it's kind of fun to like give that smile to a patient and a family and you know, give good news. Mm -hmm. So smiling is good, yep. but don't lie. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the big issue. And then also like doing a lot of unnecessary surgeries and up billing them and all that stuff, pretty unethical on that part too. And I think, I mean, Happy birthday, Greg. I wish he was here for this one. But like, this is like one of those palliative care situations where, where are we doing harm versus good? 
Mm-hmm. And I think I think this neurosurgeon's more focused on bottom line as opposed to doing what's good for the patient. Right. Um, Trauma. But yeah. spoiler alert, you should keep watching. I, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I dug for this episode too. This was an episode I dug for because I, I read it. I'm like, oh man, this is going to scratch all the itches for everybody. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah. Um, well, we, it, it took us into your specialty, which is a PZR situation. Oh, yeah. Um, this uh, is what I wrote. It, we, we had a, uh, a, a high schooler who, after getting dumped, kicked off the football team and finding out his parents are divorcing all on the same day, uh, OD'd on... Tylenol and sleeping pills. So first yeah. thing we have for you is mm-hmm. has any patient ever come into your OR or, or ER rather or, or any patient's parents and said the word acetaminophen rather than Tylenol? No, <laughs> never. And I actually wrote that down too. I'm like, they can't say the word Tylenol on there, can they? <laughs> no, like, they're not going to say OD on Tylenol. I've, I've never had anyone tell me that they took acetaminophen. Paracetamol, maybe. Paracetamol. There's a lot of research um, that yeah that talks about so paracetamol. Yeah, that's that's I'll what they call it in the UK. Like, well, it's also a It's a different drug, um, I believe. Oh, really? I believe Is so. It? Let me let me look this up before I look real stupid saying it. Uh, oh no, never mind. It's a brand name. I'm I think it's idiot. the same. Yeah, it is the same. But I'll see a lot of paracetamol um, mentioned, but never acetaminophen. Uh, But I I think that's interesting when he came in and they were very quick on kicking out the parent when the patient was pretty stable, you know, like that's one thing. If I have the parents there, I'll ask them what happened or what they think happened and then I'll kick them out Mm because that's one source of information that we can gather um, before kicking them out just in case that the patient's uptunded or drowsy or whatnot or missing stories. You got to keep the parents in there for a little bit. Uh, What's uptunded? Uptunded is like lethargic, uh, unresponsive, like really stuporous okay. kind of thing. Trying like to really die. trying to die, basically. Yeah. So I would try Although to keep they, the parent in there as long as possible. And she talked a little bit. She said, I mean, the mom like laid it out. I think he took too much acetaminophen mm-hmm. and sleeping pills. Right. Yeah. And usually, you you know what the most common sleeping pill is, right? Like that people get over the counter. Melatonin. No. Nyquil. No, it's the active ingredient in Zequil oh. right, and Unisom. Do you know what it is? It's Benadryl? Just, it's Benadryl. That's all it is. So if I've learned took from a, you mm-hmm. that what happens if you take a lot of Benadryl. You go cuckoo. You go cuckoo and you don't get sleepy. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. Yeah. yeah. yeah paradoxical you get, response. You get super agitated. You're hot and anxious and all that stuff. You're like dry. You're red. You look like crap. So... It sounds like he just took a lot of Tylenol more than anything. Um, not sponsored by Tylenol. But <laughs> they ordered the labs that I would normally order. Um, and it was funny that they had to say, don't forget to get coags because mm-hmm. that's one thing my residents sometimes forget too. And that's the true liver function test that everyone always goes, I'm going to get LFTs, which just means enzymes. But that's actually the true liver function test for telling me if someone's overdosed or having liver failure because your liver makes the proteins to help you clot. And if you don't have that, you get abnormal bruising and abnormal bleeding. Which, which is why they asked about that bruise on his arm. Correct. Exactly. And then, and then out of nowhere, he starts bleeding from his mouth. 
Oh, I missed that part. Yeah. Um, he starts like passing out and getting really <laughs> drowsy and confused. Um, they said, oh my God, he has scleroicterus. His eyes were never yellow. They were. Um, no, no, no. They, they put, uh, later they as he was talking, he was totally glowing yellow in his no, eyes. No, but during Absolutely. that scene. Not at the very beginning. Scene. You're right. Yeah. Not at the beginning. During that, yeah. And um, he should and have been a little more jaundiced at that point too. Because usually those people look terrible if they've taken that much Tylenol. Well, and talking about the coags, I love it kind of tied into the whole um, Dr. Pravesh was finishing his internship storyline. That internship took three seasons. But they they specifically said it seemed, they they made a joke about it and said, wow, that seemed like the longest year ever, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, three seasons. The quote that I just loved was he said, I think it, he says it. It's like I taught him everything he knows. And that is how I felt when I was teaching residents. You just like, you're so proud of them when they answer your thoughts. They answer all the questions that you've asked them over and over again. That's true. Some of them, the good ones. (laughs) But also I don't work one-on-one with a resident all year, even as an attending. No, like I, there's so many rotators, at least in my hospital, that it's hard for me to build up like a rapport with any of them. Oh, not the same resident, but you work with residents all year. Yes. Just they rotate through. Yeah. So I don't get that aha moment as often. No, but when you were a resident, remember, see, it's hard to remember in this show because they act like he is king of the hospital, but that yes. guy is a resident. <laughs> yeah. He's acting like an attending. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so when you're a resident, you do work very closely with the interns. Yes. That is very, very true. Um, uh, it, one thing that I, I Googled because I was surprised that they got it right, so I want to call them out for it. Uh-huh. Uh, is I didn't think that acetaminophen overdose would be the leading cause of liver failure. Oh, it's it horrible. Is, it's super high, yeah. Um, it's a very common, common thing. Like intentional overdose with acetaminophen is horrible. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the worst ways to die too because it's not heard a pretty, that. It is not a pretty death. Like you are bleeding, you're vomiting, you're having abdominal pain, you're yellow. You do not look good when you die. Um, it is a terrible way to go. And the cure for it isn't great either. So they mentioned it too. They wanted to start NAC mm-hmm. um, very quickly. They, they were like high suspicion. We're not even checking labs. We're going to start it. I rarely done that. I, the only time I've done it is when patients are really sick and I have the bottle and all that stuff. Um, Just in case and, it was something else. Yeah. And so NAC, what is NAC? It, it's N-acetylcysteine. It's also called mucomist. Um, and you can either give it IV or by mouth. And the one thing they missed a little bit was when you give knack, which he never had an IV in or anything like that, it makes you super nauseous. Like you are retching and vomiting the whole time you're getting it. Um, and the hot patients just complain, like they feel horrible when they get it because they're throwing up so much and they just can't like rest because they're feeling so nauseous from the med- medication themselves. Hmm. Yeah, that's bad. But it's to save your liver. And technically, you're supposed to check the level four hours post-ingestion. So if you know when he took it, that's when you're supposed to draw the level. And if you see it, like, escalating rapidly or anything like that, you're supposed to start NAC pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you talk about not knowing that it's the leading cause of liver failure. Um, and I, would, I didn't know before going to medical school that taking too much Tylenol could kill you. Yeah. Like, never even crossed my mind. You know, you buy it at a grocery store. Yeah. I I did know that because my dad was a pharmacist growing up and at some point in time it came up in conversation. Uh, But, but like, I didn't know that it, that it was a leading cause. Yeah. It's pretty bad. 
Um, and that's very common. Like if you think about alcoholism, it's a long-term thing. Mm-hmm. Um, fulminant hepatitis, that's pretty rare too in consideration. Tylenol, you get a lot of teenagers that overdose on Tylenol. and Because they have access thing. to it. It's a very easy, easy drug to get access to. So that's the scary part about Tylenol. Mm. And like this patient, I mean, he, they, they did all the other stuff that I would have done. Like, especially when you start to act confused, I would get a brain, not a brain CT, but, and I know what they meant, um, just to make sure he didn't bleed out or anything in his head. Um, and he needs a transplant because mm-hmm. that's the way you cure him. And, and he got one. And he got one. And that was the, the point of drama that led to this being the mid-season finale was that they lied to get him a transplant and said that he was not suicidal. Can I just make a point? Why are they letting a senior resident make decisions about transplants? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's Hollywood. And this is why we love Hollywood. Also, how did they get the whole transplant board to show up on randomly at a whim? Because it was before COVID and they could all sit in the same room together. (laughs) Um, but there was one scene that I really enjoyed. Well, I didn't really enjoy actually. It kind of gave me PTSD, but you know, when Mm -hmm. they're sitting there and they're talking and they're having the conversation with the kid and they know Mm -hmm. that he is overdosed and they know what that can be and what can happen. And then he kind of knocks out right in front of them and, you know, starts to have difficulties. Um, definitely. And I know Jackson, you deal with teen suicide attempts, you know, much more frequently than I do as in, Mm -hmm more than zero okay, very, <laughs> um, very few teenagers uh very still few in teenagers the NICU. yes yeah. attempts well we have parents sometimes That's, but yeah. it gave me a little ptsd back to a long time ago and this isn't going to be a hipaa um, issue because i don't really remember any of the details of this case whatsoever <laughs> other than a 15 year old had taken an overdose you mean an 832 in, weaker yeah 800 and something thousand weaker Um, And came in when I was in training and was having conversations with us and told us what he had taken. And I remember my attending kind of got white in the face and, you know, we walked away and he said, this kid is going to die. And I, as a trainee, I had, you know, never seen this. I was shocked. I was like, he is sitting there having full conversations with us. He's breathing on his own. He looks like I do. You know, and you kind of like wrap your brain around that. Like, how can that be? And sure enough, I don't even remember how long it was, but he started to code and, you know, we did our best to resuscitate him and he did end up dying. And just, you know, so these attempts, once they happen, like it's sometimes there's no turning back. And it's just, it's one of those cases that has stuck with me for my whole career. Yeah. And it's especially like more difficult when they don't tell you when they took their, their medication or when they tried to commit suicide, because it really affects the timing of how you save their life. Like if they, if they go, oh, I did this a couple hours ago, but really it was a day ago and the numbers are already kind of bad, mm-hmm. you know that this is going to be a bad outcome. And you kind of have those discussions already with the family. Like, yeah. this is not looking good. Like the liver looks bad. You're going to need a liver transplant. I don't know if you're going to be able to get one, but here's what we need to do. And those conversations are really tough. And they're like, well, now I don't want to die. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what else I can do for you right now. You know, like we're going to admit you. We're going to have you get watched. We'll have them observe you overnight. We'll see what the best we can do. But right now it does not look good. And it's hard because like you said, they look good. They're talking to you like normal people. They don't look sick. But 24 hours later or less than 24 hours later, they don't look very good. Mm -hmm. So it's a very tough one. 
it's so important to have like those prevention, you know, mechanisms in place because sometimes once this decision is made, they do, like mm-hmm. you said, they do want to change their mind, but it's too late at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this this case This like, is why really, I went into neonatology right here. <laughs> what you don't like having conversations about suicidality with teenage no, patients? No. I don't either, so I get it. <laughs> But unfortunately, it's a, becoming a much bigger part of my career than I anticipated. Well, and I think I that's a reflection on society. You know, teen suicide, unfortunately, has become a much bigger part than we've seen That damn music television. <laughs> that damn music television, I'm telling you. I think it's all those talkie movies. Oh, God, the talkies. Those ruin everything. But I'm going to transition to another. So that's basically that case. Um, I want to transition. Well, to I, I do, so I, I, oh. the, the, the main issue was the fact that there's not oh. a national prohibition against, against giving a transplant to someone with suicidal ideation. No. It's an internal hospital policy. Is that Correct. sort of thing common? Like a policy like that? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I'm not sure either, to be honest. Um, I would anticipate if they're trying to maintain stats, mm-hmm. your biggest concern are patients that are going to relapse and commit suicide again, right? Or right. attempt suicide again. And I think that's and, and the that's point taking of this a, That's taking a well, and that's the, dis- exactly disservice to you know the donor. And because we 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 don't have an unlimited we're not printing them that at gift. Home yeah, exactly. And I think and I that's like- that. I yeah. like the statement that the intern said, he, you know, in talking about this and kind of the struggle with, do they lie or do they don't lie, don't lie which never lie. I mean, it's medicine. You're like, you're going to lose everything. You can't, can't do what we do in Hollywood. Um, but he said, I see more shades of gray than I used to. And I think that's a big part of like developing your medical career is seeing that this is not all black and white, that, you know, there's yeah. lots of different factors that go into each decision that you make. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I, every decision I make, like, well, no one reads the book, I guess, is what I always tell my residents. Like, no one reads the book on how to manage someone or how to present with their illness. And you just have to use what you think is going to help you sleep at night and help people sleep at night to guide you to mm-hmm. make the right decision. But also, if you lie against big rules like that, you're going to get fired, which, yeah. spoiler alert, happens at the end. And his response is that rule is arbitrary and you know it. And that just, that doesn't fly. Like, and you know... Can I just make a mo- note about that then since we're on that part? They, the, the biggest thing they do as they're escorting them out is not surrender your badge. It's surrender yes. your pager. <laughs> yeah, give well, me your pager. Well, your pager and the key card to his office that has the shower in it. And I love that they mentioned the shower and like the big five TV. times. And the, the big, big TV, TV and, and the Xbox. Xbox, sure. But the big thing is the shower. Like a, a clean shower in a hospital call room is like gold beyond gold. <laughs> Those don't exist. I've never taken a shower at work. I, I usually try to make it home. Cause, and also, usually the showers that I've encountered at work have the double doors where there's a door on both sides that you can access through the two call rooms that are connected to the one really? shower. Really? Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, I'm not, not using that shower. You've got like crappy dorm showers at the hospital? Mine have curtains. Oh, yeah, they're in the bathrooms and the call rooms. And they're like, like I said, I've used one. I think I used it once a long time ago. Never never used it. Never used it. I survived. No one one barged in. 
<clears throat> Although with COVID, you know, a lot of people actually are starting to shower more at the hospital to, you know, make themselves feel better about going home to their families as well. So maybe it's not I a just, bad idea. I just change out of my scrubs the minute I enter from my garage and just I, dump everything. Yeah, I change my scrubs yeah. at work now. I don't want to bring it home, but yeah. But but taking away the pager, who cares? I, I like that they were so on top of the ball that they disabled his key card access to that room. I know, not right? so on top of the ball that he didn't give a speech to the other residents. Yeah. That's so I dumb. also love that the one of the residents like bum rushed the security guard to try to like stop him too because yeah. he you know was so invested. I, I also love that the, like the the security guards escorted him out like cops with their hand with his, their hands on his arms. Yeah, and... that does. Not well, happen. it's like when you hear about someone getting fired in like any workplace, and they're like they wait till Friday, and then they like surprise you, and security like takes your card away and escorts you out right away. Mm-hmm. I've never actually seen that happen in real life, but I think it might in some I've, places. I, I've kind of seen that happen where. Um, and by scene, I mean, had it happened to me once (laughs) (laughs) Uh, where as they were having the conversation, they were also disabling access and everything like that. It was, Hey, you know, like sat down, sat down with HR uh, because they they let go a few people over the course of a couple of weeks. And so people, as they had that conversation with HR, there was also the, and while that's happening, the emails got disabled and blah, 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 blah. They don't want you to retaliate and all that stuff. Exactly. You know what the best way to keep that from happening in the hospital? Take away their name badge. Yeah. Instead of just, yeah. Instead of just disabling its access to the room with the Xbox. Yeah. That's just so dumb. That was so dumb. So unrealistic. Who? I mean, honestly, I don't carry a pager. So this is me just going like, this is dumb. I never would carry a pager. Oh, I I, I I do. I know you do. You have to. We still have a code pager. So I've got a, a communication. Pager. We've got a communication device around my neck, so everyone can call me at any moment. And it seems like whenever I'm in the bathroom is when they absolutely need to get is a hold of me. Is that the Star Trek combat style one? Yes, it is the Star Trek combat where you can Vocera? click it and you say yeah. it's a Vocera. You my say, old roommate up. used to work for Vocera. Yeah, you say beam me up in it, and it goes. I'm sorry, Captain. And then it's like somebody's Scotty. Who is it? McCoy's voice, maybe that's saying that. There's a problem with the system or no, something. No, he was dead. He unless, was dead? Unless, unless, they yeah. use, unless they use one from the episode. He's been dead for a hot minute. Okay, then Forrest I don't know Kelly. who says it. Um, it could have been just that they pulled it from the episode. It's possible. But I'm sorry. I'm but sorry you have to carry a vocera. That, that I, thing is I annoying. carry a vocera, and then I also carry a code pager. So it goes off whenever there is a popcorn fire in one of the lounges, and someone burns popcorn. My pager goes off at 3.30 in the morning to tell me that there's a code red on the second floor staff lounge. So it's incredibly important to have. You you fire that off so quickly like it's happened before. Never. (laughs) But yeah, I don't carry a pager anymore. Like I have my cell phone and they like text message me um, via secure text messaging, but that's about it. That's the closest thing I have to a pager. Um, I never want a pager again. I haven't had one for like eight years now so or seven years now i just realized something as as we were talking which was he had a separate key card for that uh for the door to that uh to to his what residence suite Mm 
um, yep. as opposed to just being his name badge. Yeah. That badged him in. That's often so, so, the case. Oh, really? And typically the code card will just get attached to the same little bungee cord that your ID badge is on. And so you can kind of just put them both up there. Okay. I would assume that they that at this point in time, everything would be just one. That would assume uh, that hospitals have money and would spend uh, things on things that make sense. That's how it is at my hospital. Um, but then I got locked out of the drug cabinet, which I don't know why. <laughs> that was a I've real always been locked thing. out of the... Wait, so do you typically have access to the drug cabinet? I did for a while. And then ever since um, COVID happened, they locked all the doctors out. Interesting, because typically I've always seen that doctors are locked out of drug cabinets because we can write the orders mm-hmm. and the nurses then have access to the drugs. So then that protects anyone from writing an order and going to get the drug themselves mm. and yeah. doing things that they should not be doing with it. Yep. So like in most of the hospitals I've worked at, I don't even have access to the drug room. Like my badge doesn't open it. That's so weird. I used to be able to, but clearly not anymore. Yeah. Um, back to the resident. <laughs> um, so, so we saw, I, I think we oh. kind of talked about the liver, liver transplant to the extent. Anything else yeah. we want to say on that? No, but I do want to, when, when we get to, I want to talk about that lady that was from last week's episode transitioning to this week's episode. Mm-hmm. that Don Long lady, like when mm-hmm. she was the one who had the mother of all surgeries. Okay, mother. so you know her first and last name, Jackson. You watch the show, don't you? I Googled it. So <laughs> I had to Google who this lady was. But the lady was in like this, she was a vegetable, right? Like she was mm-hmm. in, she was, she was in a persistent, a, well, she persistent, was in a vegetative, persistent state. vegetative state. Yes. Yes. But the one thing I did notice that was really interesting, and you, you should go back and look at this, is she's connected to a vet. It's set on the peed infant setting. Yeah, is it? That's awesome. It's totally like her on the pediatric setting just for that. And they're trying to get her to go from the ICU to a long-term acute care facility Mm -hmm. just on the church. And the quote that just killed me in this scene was the surgeon who nobody dies in his OR said, told the daughter, don't give up on, don't give up before the miracle. Yeah, that's garbage. It hurt my soul. That's the false hope thing that we all like try not to give families. And then they transfer that patient. And you want to give them an appropriate amount of hope, but you're right. It's the reason I never use the word stable. That um, I usually say the word stable just to mean that they're okay, but not like going to be like recovering. Like, they're, they're still very sick. And I usually mm-hmm. use those words like right now, still breathing on their own, doing okay, mm-hmm. but they're very, very sick. Yeah. And I'll use things of, like today is better than yesterday. I mean, like, and I'm more long-term with my patients and I'll say things like today is better than yesterday. I'm happy about this and this, or I'm very worried about your baby. I'm worried about this, this, and this. Um, But I try not to, yeah. I just say they're going to the ICU for closer monitoring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's like my thing. Then you dump them on us. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) Hey. No one dies in my ER. There you go. <laughs> they gotta go. Point that term. Oh man. Um, but going back to this lady, uh, they tra- I think the weird part was they transferred her to this LTAC without a room. Like I don't. Yeah. That but that's weird. the po- whole po- horrible part of this. Like that they wanted that to be a horrible thing that's never supposed to happen because it's hollywood right yeah, yeah she was this... never connected to a vent or anything they just had her connected to like some oxygen 
and then just brought her into the LTAC and left her there. And basically, well, there will be a room for her as soon as someone dies was the implication there. And here's the messed up part. A lot of times those patients don't die right away. And they don't die because of the underlying thing that got them there. Like their brain is still functioning a little bit, but... The brain stem. The brain stem, really, yeah. But they'll die of other things like infections from bed sores Mm -hmm. or something like that. And I've seen that happen a lot patients would get transferred from one of these long-term facilities because they're not taken care of very well with horrible bed sores and then end up dying because of the infection of that. So, and spoiler alert, keep watching. That, oh, does she die? Not does, does she make it to the 90 days for their stats? I think they're only working for 30 days for stats. Oh, 90. 90 was the one that they used. Oh, did he say 90? Okay. Yeah. Um, I wrote that down specifically. That like seems like 90, a long time, actually. Like a, a it, it counts as an OR death if they die ninety days afterwards. Does, yeah. time. Does it also count as an OR death if you let your residents do the surgery without you being? Yeah, that was that 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 was a uh, drama number two. Was <laughs> uh, not chief of surgery yet, uh, guy, um, Doctor Kane. Doctor Kane uh, basically went out for a drive in the middle of a surgery drive towards home is my assumption yeah Um, but then when bell went in to save the day which again bell used to be a really bad guy and now he's like bleeding heart surgeon Mm -hmm. um he and he doesn't take over everything like granted he's this is not his specialty but he knows how to control bleeding and i liked how the resident was starting to get very agitated and very you know this is happening call the attending i I don't know what to do and bell was like okay you know you do this you do this good now okay now what do you do and kind of you know being that presence to like settle the resident but also questioning them to figure out what you're going to do in this situation and remind them that they know what to do exactly well they may not know that they know what to do exactly and that's like the one thing i always tell my residents is like you know a lot more than you think you know and like i'm here to fill in the gaps exactly and a lot of it is just to be calm you know you know you more than you do but it's like how do you handle the stress when something serious is happening and i think that's why the best teachers are ones who are comfortable with their own skills because then they're comfortable standing next to someone and saying okay what do you see okay what are you going to do about it okay what do you do now you know and then take over when obviously you need to take over yeah. And I think that's big in um, Courtney's and my specialties are like, we're dealing with really high stress situations at times. And it's really easy for our learners to get flustered, like super easy. And Not they even get flustered. Long, but people have been doing it for a long time. Can yeah. Get too. yeah. And you have to be the calm one in the room. If you're the panicked one, everyone feeds off of you so quickly and it makes everything so much harder. Going back to my training, my favorite, I was in an ICU once, it was pediatric ICU, and a child coded, and I can remember watching the attending, and she was like, all right, now someone start compressions, please. I already and know who it is. Somebody get the backboard. <laughs> and, no, actually, this is my medical school. You wouldn't know who it is. Oh, never mind. Somebody get the backboard now, and now, okay, let's do this. And it was like she was giving directions to the grocery store. And what it does is it calms everyone in the room and it just, it makes it kind of useful. You go back to your muscle memory of all the training that you've done 
And, you know, we've definitely, you and I both, Jackson, have seen the opposite effect of that, where oh, someone is in a code and they're like, oh my God, somebody get this and somebody get this and do this. And, and nobody knows what they're doing and nobody, yeah. you know, and it's just the stress in the room is heightened and the family is freaked out. And it's yeah. just such a different situation when you okay, someone get the backboard, please. Yeah. Let's continue compressions. And yeah. And like talking it out a lot of times, just going like, okay, I'm going to do this for this and I'm going to do that for this. Can someone please get this for me and blah, blah, blah. And just talking everything through mm -hmm. yep. stops all the anxiety and whatnot. And then the other thing that I'll do yeah. sometimes too is I'll kick people out of the room. If there's too many people or they're not helping, I kick them out because it just makes everything much worse. And I don't know if you've done that before, Courtney, but I do that way too much, but it's helpful. Not totally. I mean, when we have a baby, there's not a whole lot of real estate around them. So I typically yeah. don't more than... You can't really get more than four people around the bed. So. That's true. Although Which, when it does code, it is kind of everyone from the hospital shows up. But it's Which probably yeah, that is, that's a good segue to the last. I was going to say it too. <laughs> kind of the, the, the other, the, the second A plot of the episode. Uh, the A minus plot. Yeah. Which, you can call it a B plot. That's fine. A baby plot. Yeah, ah. B for baby. That we've baby really baby. seen a baby resuscitation in any of these podcasts. Yeah, that's and true. This time we did. Uh, we had uh, a pregnant mother friend to like best friend of one of the doctors who also had an underlying heart condition, uh, who went into labor about five weeks early, exacerbated the heart heart condition, and so they needed to deliver the baby in order to perform open heart surgery on the mother. Courtney, did you appreciate it that they said, we need to give this baby some, we need to give you steroids to help, de um, what's it, develop the baby's lungs? I did appreciate that. <laughs> Neonatologists <laughs> love maternal steroids. It actually, believe it or not, is kind of assumed to be like the biggest development in my field of medicine in the last several decades is giving mother steroids to help it's the baby huge. develop quicker. It, it's a huge difference. Oh, yeah. Really? It is. When my, my cousin was born at 35 weeks, which is the same as this baby, five weeks mm -hmm. early, um, several decades ago. And her mother was told that she wouldn't survive at 35 weeks. Mm -hmm. And now it's like I, we send those babies to the nursery typically. They don't, they don't automatically have to come to the NICU at all when they're born at 35 weeks. Now, when your mother is coding prior to your delivery, typically the baby is depressed, as we saw in this case. Um, so this so, mother, and when you say you're depressed, you don't mean that the baby is sad. I oh, don't mean that the baby so is sad. sad. I mean that the baby is comes out um, not breathing, <laughs> and the heart rate can be low, and you know needs resuscitation prior to so, survival. Just to remind me of my NRP, which is neonatal resuscitation. Um, you're supposed to like stim them first, right, and then suction, or both at the same time. You are. Well, actually, before we even get to the baby coming out, let's talk about how the mother coded yeah. prior to the baby coming out. And so mom had the dilated cardiomyopathy, meaning that her heart was failing because the chambers were too big. Yep. And so her, I think her valve failed. And so they started had, coding her. She had mitral regurge and her lungs were filled with fluid is what they said. Yeah. And I was like, huh? But because well, I mean, basically, well, she's she's not perfusing. Yeah, I mean, um, I would say mitral regurge though, which means your valve is leaky. 
Yeah, I think I the mean, valve blew right before she. Coded. Which is much different, yeah. yeah. And then when they did the ultrasound probe on her heart, they put it on her belly. Oh, I missed that. I saw, that. I saw that. As a guy who does like bedside ultrasounds at work a lot, um, that that made me cringe quite a bit when I saw that, that was a that was most likely a comfort of the actor moment. With Maybe. Rudy, Rudy from uh, the Cosby Show. Yeah, I love him. I well, didn't realize when, that was Rudy. That, so no, looking Rudy, kind of, oh, not Rudy. That was a Rudy. No, that's not Rudy. Theodore. Not Theodore. Rudy yeah. was the kid, right? Yeah, Theo. 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 Malcolm Jamal Warner. Yes. Um, he's great in this show, by the way, for anyone who wants to continue to watch episodes. Um, so as far as like the development as this is like coming up, one thing that really bothered me was when he did the ultrasound of her heart before she got into trouble and before, you know, any of this happened, he saw something bad. He connected with the nurse practitioner, like the eyes connected. And then he like, didn't tell the patient's friend in the room what the problem was, who was also a surgeon who works with them. He mm-hmm. didn't tell the patient what the problem was. He took the two friends outside and told them the problem and told them the plan of action and never kind of, updated the patient. What kind of surgeon is he? He's cardiothoracic. Oh, okay. That makes Aren't sense. you glad I watched this show religiously? Well, um, I'm glad because you're the expert on this, this show. <laughs> <laughs> He's cardiothoracic. So first of all, he doesn't update the patient at all. And then we get to the point where, you know, she codes and on the way to the OR, they're doing compressions and they're going to, they call the OB and they're going to get the baby delivered. And uh, the resident who is this patient's friend and the cardiothoracic surgeon are arguing about who to save, where he's like, we're going to take her to the OR. We're going to get the baby out. And the woman is like, no, this is my friend. Her life is most important. Save her first and then take the baby out. But when a pregnant woman codes, the first thing that you do is you take the baby out. And it's not, unfortunately, this is horrible. It's not to save the baby, but it's because so much blood is siphoned to the uterus and to the baby that if you have a woman coding, it's almost like that I don't want to use the word parasite, but it's like all of the baby is taking all of the all blood the and you can't, you cr- compressions aren't enough to oxygenate her body. Even so what you have to bats, do is you get the baby out. Yeah. So like the, the, the body will prioritize the baby, even if the, that's not. Or what the baby needed. just takes too much and the body has such low reserve during compressions that the baby is taking too much of that blood. It's not going to get to the mother's brain. And the mother's not going to survive. So in you know, standard of care, when a pregnant woman codes, you get that baby out first and immediately um, and you know, continue to code the mother. So there's no argument about which life is more important or what we should do for who we should save first or anything like that. You, you try to save both, but you immediately separate the two and you get the baby out. Now, also, I think it was poor form to bring the the friend in the room like she shouldn't have scrubbed in at all like that is like yeah. not so many ethical problems with a best friend scrubbing into the the procedure absolutely yeah. like like literally the godmother of the child yes yeah. mm-hmm. in the same way That's the surgeons enough. don't operate on their children and all you know all of those rules yeah. again rules are important a, in the hospital she's a surgery resident isn't she she's yeah. a surgery resident yes yeah and then I think the interesting part too was when they were doing the recess on the baby, they did the compressions, they did the whole like finger wrapped around with the thumbs. Um, how did they give Epi? Because I heard them call for Epi 
Um, there was no so line had, at ET2. Well, we don't know that they didn't put an umbilical line in. So I, I They actually, did show it later, though. They did I show wasn't it later. too disappointed with this resuscitation scene. I, you can tell they had a consultant, and I was, <laughs> I was a little impressed. So the baby, they got the baby out fast. Um, huh. Usually when, you're, when you coat or when you do a crash section, it's skin to baby in less than 30 seconds. Yes. So, you know, none of this was, it was definitely not real. You could tell that that baby was a very nice little simulation doll Dude, covered with goo. that baby was the creepiest looking no, baby. No, I think she was cute. But no, we have great simulation dolls now that you can, like, looking. see them breathe. And you can I'm going to take a picture of it and send there, it to The you creepy guys. moment for that baby was, I will, I will get to that after the resuscitation. But the simulation, it was definitely a simulation doll, which, of course, you're going to have to use in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. um, so they, they get the baby out fast and you know the first thing is is the baby not breathing you notice that no one talks about a heart rate nobody talks about anything no. like that because in no. neonatal resuscitation it is all oh, about heart. breathing you know in adults they call it they talk about the abcs they still they don't still do that now it's like c cab cab uh, so like ACLS, you start yeah. compressions first with an adult you Correct. worry about breathing later with a baby more than 90%. If you can breathe for them, their heart rate is going to come up. It's actually, mm. I did this this after, this morning. It worked out very well. Um, so they, I know, right? So they are, is the, is the baby breathing? The baby's not breathing. They start to bag her. One little thing that like just is a little nitpicky thing that drives me crazy is they put the baby on the warmer backwards. So they put her on like head towards the wall but if you're going to resuscitate a baby you need their head towards you so you can intubate yep. them and things mm -hmm. so baby was on backwards which is kind of like you know putting the stethoscope on backwards which is the other mm -hmm. little thing in medical dramas that drives me crazy mm -hmm. um <laughs> they bag the baby and they jump really quick to talking about the heart rate um, yep. typically we'll bag them for 30 seconds before we you know start compressions or anything like that but again, it's Hollywood call, drama, so I'll give call them out that. your app stars. I'll give them that. Um, but then they, I liked that they called out the heart rate was 50, and then they started compressions. Because a lot of people think that your heart rate has to go to zero before you start compressions, you know, like less in maybe 60. adult resuscitation. But yes, less than 60, we start compressions on babies. And then their dose of epi was actually reasonable for an umbilical line. So there's two ways to give epinephrine when you're coding a baby. One is through the endotracheal tube or the breathing tube, which this baby did not have. But we can put an emergent line in, and the dose that they said was an appropriate dose for an umbilical line. So I'm assuming, to give them the benefit of the doubt, that someone put in a line in and they just didn't say it out loud. <laughs> I mean, when and you they looking, called out the doses that they gave, you know, like I'm giving 0.5 mLs of epi, I'm doing this, which is something you definitely want to do in a code situation. They did some, show the baby with a line in the NICU. I'm sorry? Uh, they did show the baby with a line in the NICU. Well, and it's a different line. Like in a delivery room, you'll place an emergent line that mm -hmm. then gets taken out in the NICU. Um, mm -hmm. But it's something that, you know, should have been, that would have been the next step in resuscitation to put a line in and give epi through the line. Um, mm -hmm. So this is where we get back to the creepy simulation baby thing, though. So they... I have a quick question about coding. Is there somebody mm -hmm. whose responsibility it is to, like, take notes? Yes. Yes. Typically, yes. Yes. The recorder. If, there, if there's enough people there, there's... An, there, if there's then... enough people, yes. And it's funny, oh. too, because we used to have the newest person get the do the recording. You know, everyone has their own job in a code situation. You have your code leader. 
you have the person checking the heart rate, the person drawing up drugs, the, you know, the respiratory therapist, everyone's got a job. And kind of the idea used to be to give the newest person, the person learning the job of recording, but really you need to know what's going on to be an accurate recorder. And so it's better to have someone who, you know, is very practiced in this Hmm. because things move so quickly to be able to, you know, they have to write so much down as far as like the vitals, the heart rate at this minute of life and the heart rate here. And this is the time of dose of epi. And this is the time of the second dose of epi. And this is, you know, so it's a lot of recording and things move very quickly. And there's a person, hopefully just the code captain is calling out those numbers that need to be recorded, but it's kind of moved on to having, you know, the more senior people do the recording as well. Now, granted, you know, in a delivery and in that delivery in the OR, there were, I think, just three resuscitators. There was, yeah. and granted, it's not typically, you know, the nurse practitioner mm-hmm. who knows the patient and is a friend usually is not the person who is doing it. But nope. if there's not enough people to record, then, you know, that, that per- you call a code and you bring more people in and that person comes later. Yeah. But, but going um, back the to the simulation the, doll, the simulation doll, and the thing that creeped me out was so they they were breathing. They did bagging first. That was great. They moved on to chest compressions. That was great. They gave the epi. That was great. And then you look at the simulation doll, and the baby opens her eyes and starts to breathe and starts to cry, and they stop everything oh. all at once. Like stop compressions. Stop. You know, and. I've seen that happen maybe once, not actually, no, I've never seen that happen when you're doing compressions, definitely with bagging. Sometimes a baby will just wake up like zero to 60 and, you know, no time flat. But usually that is not the case that you automatically get the baby back and they open their eyes and they look at you and they're perfect and everything's fine. And all hands come off of the baby. And, you know, now we move to the NICU in a nice, easy fashion. Like that's usually not how babies come back but mm-hmm. I'll give them that one because it was Hollywood effect. Yeah. I mean, that's how you show that it worked quickly, I guess. Um, it my, is exciting though when they come back, we all typically cheer. <laughs> it's like, yay, it worked. Yes, exactly. I cheer after, after they're gone from my department, then I cheer. But can, can I mention one random, or one thing at least from the big person part is the cardiac like massage. Because they had her chest open and uh, they were just squeezing her heart to restart it. I don't know if you saw that part, but like her yeah, heart stopped. Massaging it. Yeah, but that's not how you're supposed to do uh, cardiac compre- um, intrathoracic cardiac massage. Normally, you're supposed to like press on it gently or lift it against like the thoracic wall. And the reason why you don't squeeze it. So you is, don't do this? Yeah, yeah you're not supposed this to is squeeze an audio it. Podcast. Like, yes. You you're not I was going to say, I've turned off the video. Johnny, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm trying to think like, you're not supposed to squeeze it like, an udder or like squeezing to check like if a stress uh, ball. Avoc- <laughs> like <Yeah. an> udder. <laughs> or check trying to squeeze it to see if an avocado is ripe or not like that's not how you're supposed to squeeze the heart you're actually supposed to push it gently with your like palm or your fingers against like a hard surface like be it the thoracic wall or something else because the reason why is if you get anxious and you're squeezing the heart and you get <laughs> scared or startled you'll squeeze it too hard and actually cause uh, myocardial damage so that's the big concern. I'm laughing so at that, despite the fact that I know that that's absolutely a valid reason not not to do that. But the yeah. fact that that somebody had to, you know, after 200 years of medicine, say, "Wait a second, don't squeeze it like an avocado yeah. or something like that." Maybe well, yeah. don't clench truth. our fists around the heart. 
that's the truth is when you're doing any kind of situation like that, you know, adrenaline is up in anyone who is in the room. And so it's very easy to, to go overboard. I think squeeze hard. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've only been in one case where I've had to crack open the chest and do cardiac massage um, in my training. And they were like, okay, don't squeeze the heart. Use your hand and push it against the chest wall, like the anterior chest wall, and try to get blood going that way and do your best and keep it going. And if you feel a hole, then plug it up with your finger for a little bit and then keep pushing. There was a person who got shot. So okay, they were trying to find where the, the, the guy went and got sharp penetrating trauma, cardiac arrest, um, lost pulses, cracked open the chest. It's like a last, like... Um, last ditch effort massaging the heart trying to get him back yeah then, like the, the if if you feel a hole caught me off guard there because you know the the finger plug method method is not something i would generally think of as being a, it's a leak oh, in the it's, solution it happens in hollywood all the time how many times do yeah. people get shot stick your finger in there yeah True. it's a leak it's a leak in the system right like you mm -hmm. gotta at least try to like hold it there and just keep massaging, but don't jam your finger in there because again, you're going to cause more damage. So just feel there and if hope it's for the best. If a pinhole leak, can you use the back of your earring? Obviously. Sparkle, sparkle? Sparkle, sparkle. Potentially. But that's like the scary part <laughs> with those thoracotomies is like you're doing it because they're dead and the likeliness of them surviving is pretty low. So the last thing you want to do is squeeze their heart and then accidentally go get startled and squeeze too hard and you essentially perform the fatality. <laughs> Kelly Ma, Kelly Ma. Yeah, that's essentially what they did. And then they wheeled her out of the OR with no ventilator on just oxygen. I noticed that too, and that made me really upset. So um, this whole episode was, uh, was, uh, baby. It, was a, it was a roller coaster. Well, I, I guess with that, I think that I'm just going to start an argument now by asking oh. a question. Oh, God. Uh, the human centipede bills itself as 100% medically accurate. And if that's the case, uh -huh. uh, how medically accurate is The Resident Season 3, Episode 10, The Whistleblower? I'm going to start with Dr. Jackson Vane because then Courtney can defend it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So if Courtney does believe the Nikki stuff is true, that's already more accurate, right? And then also the whole uh, overdose of Tylenol, pretty accurate. The stuff that I have problems with is the ethical stuff. And then also like performing surgeries on people. And who knows, that might be an accurate thing with shady hospitals and whatnot. It's really technique that comes down to managing acutely ill people. So the cardiac massage, the compressions, the saving a patient who overdosed on Tylenol and that kind of stuff. And then just not having anyone with adequate airway management. I'd say it's as accurate as the human centipede. That's more than I thought we would get from you, Jackson. I'm going to say that because the human centipede in comparison to this adequate, but I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's on par. Okay. And Dr. Courtney Nicholas with 100% being our baseline as accurate as the human centipede. How medically accurate was this episode of the resident? I'll give it 110%. Um, I agree with Jackson. I think that the, the medical accuracies are, an improvement to the human centipede where I think we lose this episode is some of the ethical things. And then also when you're trying to 
bump up the relationship with between doctors and patients for Hollywood um, excitement. I think that can cross over and can make doctors cringe sometimes, but I'm not going to dock them for medical accuracies for those things. Okay. I was expecting a fight. I'm disappointed now. Sorry. So deal with it. Fight over something. <laughs> this is not blood sport with Greg. <laughs> I That's where the fight comes from, which you should still watch for me. Blood sport is, it, it was really good. It's so good. I, I did not expect it to be as good of a film as it was, and it was great. Oh, it's, it's so good. I did not expect The Resident to be as good of a show as it was, and I really enjoyed it. I How dare you. Johnny's No. I'm, oh. Oh, it's, this episode, like, I watched I, it and I checked how much time was left at least five times. It did feel long. Oh, I'll God. give you that. I checked how much time was left because I knew you guys wanted to record this podcast relatively soon. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I wasn't late. I looked so many times, like, why is this episode still going? Like, it hurts how long this show is. I can't. I did like the multiple story strings, though, and how they bounce, you know, back and forth between mm -hmm. them. There were a lot of stories. Like, I had to break it down by patient, and I wrote down a lot. Um, I will say, the cheesiest line that was said by Devin on his last words as an intern was, what a privilege to be a part of all of this. Okay, I wrote that one, too, and I liked that. I They're know super it's cheesy. cheesy. It's I cheesy, agree. but it feels, I mean, especially with everything happening right now, like, it feels true. Like, it is a privilege yeah. to, to take part of this. Whenever a, a parent thanks me for taking care of their baby, you know, thank you for what you're doing and everything, I always say thank you for letting me take care of your baby. Like, it, I think it is a privilege that they trust you and they allow you to, you know, Take and care of say, someone, the most important person in their life. Yeah, and I, I will say that from an ER standpoint, it is nice to hear that, like a thank you. It's not, and, it's not often when we hear it, but when we do hear it, it is nice. Exactly, and right before he said, what a privilege, he said, this is the best job ever, despite of everything and because of everything. And I think that's very true too. Definitely good and, good and bad parts of it. Oh yeah, I agree. Take away my pager. This is going to be the feel-good episode of... We need a feel-good episode so right now. Of hi, everybody. Yeah. Medicine is crazy. <laughs> yeah, medicine's crazy. That's all I got to say, especially with all we do right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, um, with that, uh, anything else we want to add on The Resident? I'm just looking. Uh, no, please. Okay. I'll, I'll pick a different... Oh, God. We'll do something else different next week. Not The Resident. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. It's fantastic. Nope. We could just do every single... I could be a resident podcast. Yeah. You, you could be our resident... Courtney our, our can resident, be our resident, resident expert. One oh. thing I did notice at the very end is they're showing the baby and, you know, okay, the baby's safe in the NICU. The heart monitor sticker was off the baby a little bit. But mm. one thing I will give them is the vitals were very appropriate for a child of this age, which... Has Art not been the case. Yeah, like 130, 130 something and stats. Every, and the blood pressure was reasonable. Like, yes, uh, different from other shows. I did not feel like the baby was going to, you know, blow up from a blood pressure suitable, <laughs> suitable for a 40-year-old. I will say vital signs in babies are the number one uh, source of stress and anxiety to my ER residents. I believe like, it. The heart rate's 150. What do I do? I'm like, nothing. That's fine. Exactly. That's beautiful. Yeah. 
baby sun. I've had I've had babies coming in getting chest compressions because people thought that their heart rate should be higher than it was, and I'm like, no, this is good, this is good. Let's stop the compressions. But the baby's sick. Like the baby's crying. The baby's okay. (laughs) The baby's crying because you're pushing on their chest. Please stop. The baby's sad. Yeah, the baby's (laughs) sad from not being able to breathe and hurting, but not depressed. Oh, that baby is. Well, depressed in a different way, I will say. But yeah. But yeah, I think this was a good discussion. Yeah, it was fun. Isn't the resident wonderful? I I enjoyed it. Jury's out. (laughs) (laughs) No way. By the way, this was ranked number five, I think, on best residence episodes. I'm not joking. There's like a list of the best episodes of The Resident, and this was number five. I, I watched the next episode, so I was hooked. It, yeah. it is the best episode of The Resident that I've seen. <laughs> of two? Three, because I saw the pilot. Uh, uh, true. Yeah, that, that pilot, though, is horrendous. That is the worst episode of television I've, I've seen. From I, I'm going to be honest. So I watched the episode afterwards, and I was kind of annoyed with the fact that they had a, uh, uh, a character. He didn't have muscular dystrophy, but he had a, a similar disease, a similar illness. And they use an able, able-bodied actor. That's the sort of thing that rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. You want to take us with, home, Johnny? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with all of that, folks, um, we will be back next week slash soon to talk more about Hollywood's good and bad stuff. There was a lot more good stuff here than I, than I really expected. So, yay. Good on you, the resident. Good on you. Uh, Thanks, folks, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good one. Yeah.